It seems like we've been apart from one another. It seems like a long time. <laughs> it's only been a couple weeks, but it feels like an eternity for some reason. But we're going to be looking at uh, Joshua chapter 13 tonight, and then we'll take communion together. I don't think we'll get to 14. And before we get into chapter 13 tonight, we're just going to back up just ever so slightly and just kind of take stock of what has happened. If you recall, God had uh, promised the children of Israel the land of Canaan. He had promised it to them. Long ago it was prophesied uh, when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. I would encourage you to read that chapter because God speaks to Abraham and tells him that his, his seed, his descendants, were going to spend 430 years in Egypt. And that at the end of that time, they were going to be led out of Egypt. And part of the reason they would still remain in Egypt is because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. In other words, while God was um, doing a work in his people while they were still in Egypt, he was also doing a work in a heathen people, those seven nations in, in the land of Canaan, the, the, the you know, the... The, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, or the, you know, the, uh, the Hittites, the Hivites, and those, uh, those seven group of, those seven nations who are idolatrous, they had that, all that time to turn away from their sin, but we know that they did not. And there came a time where God said, enough is enough. And nationally, he allowed them to all be exterminated, to be driven out, to be dispossessed by the Israelites, whom God was going to bring out of captivity uh, spend 40 years in the desert proving them and, and, and revealing their, their, their selves to themselves, revealing their nature to themselves, and also proving them, just getting them to learn obedience. And we know that that was a very tough time. And then finally there came a time after Moses and Aaron had passed from the scene. You remember that Joshua took up the mantle and he brought the children of Israel across the Jordan River at flood stage. And God stopped up the waters, did the miracle again on the anniversary of the Red Sea crossing, on the anniversary of actually the Passover. That's when that, that, that deliverance came, when they crossed that river. That was during the Passover. And, and I think that's interesting because both were deliverance from destruction. Deliverance from destruction. And so we looked at... Uh, chapters uh, 6 through 11, and if you remember, one of the things that's interesting about the book of Joshua up to this point in time is that in chapter 6, we see them going against their very first city, which was Jericho, and the, the Bible is, is quite lengthy in, in the description of the preparation, getting, uh, the preparation of the children of Israel to get them to go against Jericho, and then what happened afterwards. And from that moment onward, as, as they get, got into the battle of Ai next, and then as they got into the battle of, of, of uh, Beth, uh, Bethel and, um, and Ai, and also Gibeon in the southern uh, part of the country, that you'll notice that the, the detail of those different campaigns begins to diminish. It's almost like in the very beginning, God is spending a lot of time talking about Jericho, a little bit less time talking about Ai and Bethel, and then a little bit less time talking about Gabeah and the sun going down and, and the sun being restrained for a time and the miracle that God did there. But then after that moment, you'll notice that it's almost just like a listing then of kings that were um, destroyed and dispossessed. And there wasn't very much information concerning those. And I find that interesting. 
And so we're going to, between uh, chapters 13 and 19, we're going to see now, after this battle, uh, again, after they were, uh, they destroyed those in the center part of Canaan, they went to the south, and they conquered those kings. They went to the north, and they conquered those kings. And now there comes a time of peace and rest, relative peace and rest, because now they were going to divide the land according to their tribes. And now comes the the, the banners and, and the, the, the happy times, because this was probably one of the happiest times that Israel had ever experienced. The, bad, the big battles have been done, and now it's just a time of settling into the land and settling into homes that have already been created, settling into lands that have already been, already been furrowed. The land had already been furrowed. The land had already been planted. There's vineyards and things that are already planted, that they're inheriting all this stuff. They didn't have to lift a finger to do, and now they're inheriting all of these things, and what a blessing that is. They can hit the ground running, and now they've subdued all their enemies, and now all that's left is really just a few small pockets of things, which they know in their heart that if they're obedient, when they get into the land, as they divide the land, they should be able to just drive those enemies out and to take care of those things fairly easily because the big things, the big cities, the big armaments, those things have been taken care of. Now it's just pretty much a cleanup operation when they want to, when they get around to it. And so that is where we are at. So let's back up and let's just look at chapter uh, 11 really quickly, just to kind of get us up to speed of where we're going. And let's just read through it, just as a way of reminding ourselves where we've been. Now remember, Joshua and the children of Israel, they were in this northern campaign, their final campaign before they would begin dividing up the land for their inheritance. So let's look at verse 12 of chapter 11. And it says, so all the cities of those kings, speaking of those northern kings, all their kings, Joshua took and he struck with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And the idea behind this is, a lot of times these cities were built on mounds, and they, they call them like little tells, they're, they're like a little hill. And so civilizations, when they, especially cities like this, they, they would be up there for hundreds of years, and then they would be destroyed or something would happen, and then they'd build on top of that, and then they'd build on top of it, and then they'd build on top of it. Israel is a perfect example. That city has been destroyed and built up over seven times at least, and I think the number is even greater than that. But the idea is they're just layers of civilization. That's why when they go to Jericho and they started excavating Jericho, they had to go down through layers of, of history before they found uh, those walls. And they were able to discern what happened there and how it happened and what was left. And they could even tell, just like a, like a fire marshal can go into a building that's burned down and he can look and he can find the source of the fire. I don't know if you knew that. When a building burns down, a, a fire marshal will come in because my stepfather well, used to be a, a, he, he was a fire chief. They could go in and they could find the, where the fire began, which to me is, is amazing. But there's ways, physics are involved, and they can figure out exactly where in the building, where it started, the origin of the fire. Was it electric? Was it somebody throwing a Molotov cocktail to the window? How did it happen? And so anyway, 
But as the city, so they, they, they had these mounds, and if you go to Israel with us in March, you're going to see this town Hazor. It's there to this day, and as we drive Highway 90, going down from the Galilee, down into the Dead Sea area, you're going to see Hazor on your left-hand side, and there's going to be a big mountain, and you're going to be able to see it, and you're going to see the ruins, and they're still excavating it, and they're still looking at that, but that is there today. We're going to drive right by it. I don't know if we're going to actually go in and see it, because I think it's still probably off guards to, uh, or off limits to... Uh, tourists, because they're still looking into things. But wouldn't it just be cool to go up there and just at night with a, with a shovel and just start digging around? You know, with your hat and that little whip that India jo- Indiana Jones has? I just want to do it so bad. I don't know if you guys will bail me out. Is there, do they bail people out of jail or do they just keep them in there? I don't know. But anyway, I'd love to do that just for fun. Actually, I'd really like to go underneath the Temple Mount, just kind of go underneath the Dome of the Rock and start frittering away down there somewhere in those caverns down underneath there. Probably never see me again. But as the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them. And why would you burn a city that's already well established? So there was some wisdom in that because the city had already been built up. It had already been inhabited. It's got all this wonderful stuff. So why burn it down when you can just walk in and everything is nearly provided for you? They did that. They only burned one city, and that was Hazor. For some reason, it doesn't make mention of why they did it, but they burned that completely. They just torched it. Um, And so, verse 14, And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. Again, this is God's command to them that they should do this. And in our culture, again, I, I, can't, I can't escape this for some reason because we've gone so far in our culture from the way God thinks often. You know, there, there, there's, a, there's a repercussions for sin. There's consequences for sin, but not in America anymore. You can do whatever you want. Do you realize how often you have to be put in jail before you spend any real jail time? You could be busted for cocaine, for heroin, and and you get your wrist slapped and you get sent back out on the street to do the same thing again. Nobody learns anything. They learn that crime does pay. Amen? That's 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 what the kids, that's what the young adults have learned through our administrations today and through the justice system. They've learned that crime does pay. So verse 15, as the Lord commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. Notice the chain of command, God, Moses, and Joshua. The Lord commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did, and he left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And see, this is the reasonable response to any child of God, and especially those in leadership in the church. For any child of God, but especially the leadership, and that is to listen and to obey. To listen and obey. That is what we ought to do. I need to listen and I need to obey. Not to listen and then make alternate ideas, give alternate views about what I think should happen. No, I need to listen and I need to obey. That is where the greatest blessing comes when I do that with the Word of God. Now, some advice from somebody may be worth listening to, but not obeying. But when God says something, whether you understand it completely or not, we must listen and obey. He knows best. Remember that. Actually, let's say it together. Ready? He knows best. God knows best. He does. And that is what we are to do. And notice that Joshua's heart, it was single. It was unwavering. He was 
going to execute what God had told him to do. And you know what? That is such a wonderful heart. Even though it meant the uh, very um, firm things, firm lines were drawn in the sand, and he held to them. He didn't question them. He didn't say, God, I got a better idea. I'm a commander, by the way. I've been through a number of these things. I don't know if you know, but going behind the city with an ambush, not really a good idea, but, you know, if, you, if it be your will. No, he didn't argue with God. He just simply did what God told him. He gave the battle plan. And see, we need to be the same. Remember what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Remember after Saul, the first king of Israel, went in against the, I believe it was the Amalekites, and he was supposed to slay all of them. He was supposed to kill all of them and their king, but he didn't. And he, and he kept back some of the spoil, which he wasn't supposed to take. And then he feigned to be some kind of religious man and say, well, these are these animals, uh, after Samuel said, what's this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Bah! I can hear that in the background. Bah! Samuel says, what's, what's that noise behind me? Oh, that's the people. They wanted to keep it. You know, they, they wanted it. It was the people. They did that so we can have animals to sacrifice. And what did Samuel say to Saul, which I think is really great advice for us today. Samuel said to him, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Here it is. It's obedience, isn't it? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And here was the result of that. He said, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Obedience is critical in the Christian walk. If we believe the word of God, the blessing is in obeying it, not just in hearing it, because you can hear it and not do it, and you're not going to be blessed. In fact, I think that's where the Christian church today, including myself at times, where I, don't, I listen, but I don't do. And then I get kind of tired of the word of God. I get kind of lax and lazy, and I don't really think that the word of God is, you know, I get dull of heart. And the secret is because if I do what it says, I will see the blessing. But when I don't do what it says, then I don't receive the blessing. And then we get upset. We get discouraged. And we say, well, God's word really doesn't work. Have you tried the Lord Jesus Christ? Ah, I tried that. It works good for you. Praise the Lord. Are you serious? Taste and see that the Lord is good. And take it and ingest it. It's not until you get it into your mouth and you swallow it and it becomes a part of you and it starts to command you, it starts to drive you. Are you going to really realize the, the, the veracity, the, the, the uh, I hate to use the word efficacy, but that's the only word that's come to my mind, sorry. But it's like, it's effective. It's effective, but you got to do it. You can't just listen to it and say, well, it's good for somebody else. No, it's good for me. It's good for you. Please, brothers and sisters, tonight, change your heart about the word of God. Change your heart about the Word of God. Is it the Word of God? If it is, then give everything of your being to it and obey it. If it's not the Word of God, then go somewhere else and do something else. But I hope you'll come back because it's the truth. And you'll find that it is the truth. Every person has sought their own way, and they go off, and they, they're like the prodigal son. Eventually, eventually you'll find yourself really longing for the peace again, longing for the fellowship again. Make that the, the deciding factor of your heart. I, Lord, this year I want to do something different. I, I want to read this word, and I want you to do something in this old soul of mine. Do it. Do it, Lord, or I'm going to die. 
Do you have that fervency? Do you have that, that need, that desperation? I tell you what, when you have the desperation, he's going to show up in a big way. He's going to show up. Verse 16, thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the low land, and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel, and its low lands, from Mount Halak and the ascent of Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. So now we're way up in the northern part of Israel. And I just think that's interesting. If you ever, if you go to Israel, again, I'm making all these plugs to Israel because I'm getting excited as we get closer. But when we get up in the, in the, in the northern part on the Golan Heights, there's a military outpost, which we always go to when we go up there, and I don't know what's happened to it recently. It's probably, uh, I, know, I know it's still there, but uh, we're going to go up there, and you're going to look, and on a clear day, you can see Mount Hermon straight in front of you. You can see the snow-capped mountain right in front of you, Mount Hermon, and then you're going to look over to your right, and you're going to see Syria, because you're on a hill, and it goes down, and right there is Syria, and you're going to look over there, and you're going to see Lebanon, and you know it's Lebanon because you look over there, and it looks all brown, because And you look over and you see where Israel starts, and it's all green. Very plush land. The mountains of Israel, its low lands. So he captured all their kings, notice verse 17 at the end, and he struck them down and he killed them. He didn't negotiate with them. He didn't say, you know, it's not good for me to do that because God says it's not good to kill, so I really can't kill you. No, God said, go and kill them. And that sounds a little stark and, and kind of freaky, doesn't it? Because you don't hear that in anywhere else. You don't hear that anywhere else because there's consequences. There's consequences. And this is when God flips over from his grace and he says, now it's time for judgment. And thank God you and I will never have to see that part of God. And woe to the person who is going to see that part of God, because he is a God, he's a savior, he's a God of love, but he's also a God of vengeance. And we can never wrestle that away. There are people today that would love to just tear that away from God, but that's who he is. We better leave him alone. And we better trust him. When he says it's time and that time is up, he's got a really good reasons for saying so. And I ought not to question it. So notice in verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. It was about a seven-year campaign. So verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. Remember, the Gibeonites kind of deceived the Israelites in feigning that they were something that they really were not. But they did it to save their own neck, and you, and you honestly can't blame them. You can't blame them, but because of their uh, lacks at the time, because of their lack of obedience, because of their keen spiritual discernment, which they didn't have at the moment, they didn't seek the Lord in this whole thing. The Gibeonites bamboozled them, and now they've, they're in this pack with them. Now they've got to help them. They've got to save them from these from this, uh, southern uh, kings that were going to come up against them, because now they were confederate with Israel. Verse 20, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. Notice, that, that's, kind of un, that's kind of unsettling too. It kind of reminds me of Exodus with Pharaoh. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, hard to, hard to read. But God is a God of justice. He's, he's not necessarily fair, but he's a just God. Is it, do you know the difference? God is not necessarily fair, but he's just. 
Because why would he allow Isaac and, um, um, and, and Esau? Why would he give the greater blessing? Why would he say through Jacob, you know, would be the, what, the, the coming Messiah would come through, but sorry, Esau, I'm still going to bless you, but you're not going to be, uh, you know, in, as prominent as your brother. That's not fair, is it? Everyone would raise the flags and say, that's not fair. Yeah, it's not fair, but God is just. There's a difference. He's just. And why is this? Why would God, you know, uh, do this kind of thing and actually destroy them? Because the Lord had already passed judgment upon that, those, five, those seven nations, didn't he? There's verses of justification, and, and if you write anything down tonight, write this verse down. It's Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. I call it the verses of justification, <laughs> because God's going to justify why he did this, why he did this. And I think it's good for us to understand the mind of God, and sometimes he does give us reasons why he does certain things, and other times he doesn't. And this is one place where he does. He says exactly why to go into these seven nations, completely destroy them. <gasps> You've got to be kidding. I thought you were a God of love. And well, he is a God of love. He is a God of love. Let me read it to you, but just remember, Deuteronomy chapter 20, 16 through 18. Memorize this verse if you have to, because people don't understand this. This is one of the biggest hurdles for people to get through today, because God says something like this, and he means business. He says, but the cities, God speaking to the children of Israel, he says, but of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them. And he lists, the, lists these nations, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. And why? Why is he going to have them do this? Here is the reason. Here is the justification for it all. Verse 18, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. In fact, that's the reason why God is going to dispossess them. He's going to allow the Israelites to come against them and dispossess them and take them out of their land and destroy them because of that very reason. Again, it's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? But again, these people have been sinning, and they've continued to sacrifice their children on the fires of the altar of Molech. They've continued to do these horrible things. And if any one of us were to see that going on for 400 or more years, actually, more than 400 years, I think every one of us would say, you know what, Lord, you're justified in destroying them. They did not turn from it. They knew it was wrong. They know in their heart that it's wrong but they've been deceived. But there is, there is a consequence for sin. You know, recently when I was in Florida, I was watching Fox News with my family, and I saw something that came up that was pretty startling. On the news it says, starting July 1st, and I'm looking at a, a thing directly from a screenshot from the, from the television, Starting July 1st, 2020, in California, students can't be suspended for willful defiance or disruptiveness. The existing law applied to grades 1 through 3, but now they're extending it and expanding it to, to, for grades 4 and 5 as well. What that means is, is that if you're uh, in first grade through fifth grade, you can do whatever you want in California schools, and they cannot suspend you. Starting July 1st, 
this year, crime does pay. Disobedience does pay in certain states. It really doesn't, but that's what the message they're sending. Do you understand? Do you understand how crazy and unhinged things are? And it's because they've neglected God, they've rejected God, and now they are in a place where they are going to pay the price. The price is already coming to fruition. The, the, roost, <laughs> the rooster is it, it's coming to pass. It's coming to pass. And yet they, they can't seem to see it. It's almost like they're blind. And it won't be long. Our state will do the same thing. Our state has done some even more atrocious things with the Reproductive Health Care Act that Andrew Cuomo has passed. Shame on him for what he's done. May the Lord save his soul. Verse 21. <laughs> and at that time Joshua came out and he cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the mountains of Judah and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua, again, utterly destroyed them with their cities. And none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. That's an important thing to remember. You might want to put a little star next to verse 22 because for whatever reason... These were not destroyed in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. They were still Anakim. Remember, the Anakim was this race of giants. And, and they were there before the flood, and they were destroyed, and, and they were there after the flood. And, and that's a whole other Bible study. But something wicked and strange about this race of people, but they were, they were very large in stature. They were very feared. And so, for some reason, you know, Joshua... Uh, had snuffed out many of them, but there remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. And it makes you wonder why they didn't go after them and, and destroy them all. And you, you realize that the, the result of not doing that, 400 and some years after this event, who was going to pay the price for that? The children of Israel again. When Saul became king, how many times did he go after the Philistines? Finally, David, this little young strapling of a teenager, comes up with a sling and stones, and he looks at Goliath, a son of the giant, of Anak, one of, a descendant from this race. And he takes him out with a stone. And I love this event. It was God's will. <laughs> I mean... David could have ran, he could have put that stone in that leather pouch, and he could have ran straight up to Goliath, and he could have swung it around and slung it, and somehow it could have gone all the way behind him. I've said this before, but I, it feels so good to say it again. He could have slung that rock, and it would have went right behind him, and it would have went all the way around the world and hit Goliath in the back of the head, because it was God's will. <laughs> God meant business. But for whatever reason, they were left to continue because remember Goliath was a champion and he his name was Goliath and he was from Gath from this place from he was a Gittite he was from Gath so the ramifications of not finishing this campaign had future ramifications didn't it and see that's that's the difference of obedience and how many times have i been disobedient in my life and those Choices that I've made have had repercussions in the future. I can't escape them. And the number of times that I've been disobedient to God and, 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 and disregarded those things, 
It ultimately culminated in my life when I was 24. Because of my disobedience and my lack of, of, of devotion to God, not knowing him, eventually a life becomes wrecked. Eventually a life comes to rock bottom, to where all you can do is look up when your life is a complete smoldering mess. When you fried every relationship in your life, you spent all of your money, and in fact you're, you're in such debt from credit cards that there's no way out of it now. The interest, you can't even pay the interest payments because there's so much. The relationships that you've made, you've hurt. The people you've hurt. And you find your, your kids leaving you and taking drugs. And you yourself are now taking drugs. And the next thing you know, your life is just a, a big shambled mess. Verse 23, so Joshua, he took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it, notice, as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, and then the land rested from war. And boy, what a happy day that must have been. To finally have gotten the big cities, the really big armaments, they they got the big enemy out of the way, and now all they had to do was go in and possess the land and these small little pockets they should be able to take care of in a very short period of time. But we know that that didn't happen. In fact, because they didn't do that, because they weren't obedient, do you understand that that was ultimately to their undoing? Because they gave in. They started looking at these people as they were going, oh, they're not so bad. What is this that you're worshiping? Oh, this is a, 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 a statue that my father made when I was a little girl. Wow, that's pretty cool. What's the name of that God? And then the name of the God is spoken, and she's really cute, and that Hebrew boy is going, you know, she's really not so bad. Tell me more about that God. Next thing you know, they're kissing. Next thing you know, there's a baby. Next thing you know, they're marrying each other, and then everyone else is going, well, they're not so bad. Look what happened to him. God didn't judge yet, so it must be okay. And then the children of Israel learn idolatry. They learn idolatry, and ultimately it leads them into captivity. When the Assyrians came in 722 B.C., they came and they plucked them out of their land. The northern ten tribes, Sia, took them into captivity, led them into the land of Assyria by fish hooks in their mouths, in their lips, in their jaws. They would just run the hook straight through, and you'd be led on a chain, like a chain gang, led back to Assyria because of their disobedience. Let's get into chapter. So chapter 12, which we won't need to get into, is really just a cataloging. And this really is the bridge from what we have heard so far before we get into chapter 13. Chapter 12 is nothing more than a catalog of all of the enemies, all the kings that were conquered by Moses first, Sihon, who was the uh, the king of uh, of the Amorites and Og, king of Bashan, and all those peoples along the eastern side of the Jordan River. All of those kings were, were taken. All those peoples were destroyed. And the, three and a half, or the two and a half tribes, Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, they occupied that area. And then finally, the kings uh, in verse uh, 7 of that chapter, we see all the kings that were conquered by Joshua, the ones that we had talked about already as we've gone through the battle of Jericho and Ai and Bethel and Gibeon and those southern tribes, those northern, or those southern uh, cities and the northern cities. All those kings, there's a listing here. And so now we get into chapter 13, and it says, Now Joshua, at this time, he was old. He's probably at least 100 years old at this time. 
He was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, and I love this, it's almost like a friend. You know how when you, when you get close to somebody and you can say, you know what, you're really looking pretty old. You're look, looking like an old sack of potatoes. You look like a raisin. Has anybody ever said to that? You know, there's people in Florida, you know, elderly people, I don't know what it is, the sun just kisses them in such a big way that they look like a raisin, you know. But, um, but Joshua was well advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you know, you're, you're a geezer. You're old. You're advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. And we know that he was probably at least 100 years old because at the end of the book of Joshua, it says that Joshua, the servant of the Lord, he died being 110 years old. 110 years old. Wow, what a, an amazing life that man had. And notice, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. Again, their conquest of the land was for the big cities and the larger populations. They did that, and all they had to do now was just finish the work, finish the work. And we know that they did not. They did not do that. So verse 2, this is the land that yet remains, all the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Jeshurites. Now, it's interesting, the Philistines are a huge uh, story, really, in, in the Bible because we see them coming up over and over again. In fact, um, let me just read something to you, but maybe just write down the reference. Uh, Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 14. Again, Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 14. Let me just read to you a little bit of their origins because we're going to encounter them uh, later on when we get into... Uh, judges, certainly when we get into First and Second Samuel, we're going we're gonna to see these people and just to understand a little bit about them. It says in verse 6 of Genesis 10, it says, the sons of Ham, remember when Noah, when that boat landed out in Mount Ararat, that Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, the sons of Noah, were the ones who really populated the world. In fact, all of us in this room are either from Shem, Ham, or Japheth. All of the uh, Jewish people, all the Arab peoples, they all, most of them, are, certainly all the Jews, many of the Arabs, come from the line of Shem. And they call them Semites because it's the word Shem, uh, from Shem. They're Shemites, or Semites as we call them. They come from the line of Shem. That's why they call them Semites. And anybody who's opposed to them and hates them is called what? An anti-Semite, right? But there are, there are other people groups that came from the Ham, um, uh, Ham is uh, mainly those from Egypt, but some other peoples. But notice in verse 6, the sons of Ham were, and they list them, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Reamah, and Sabtika. And the sons of Reamah were Sheba and Dadan, who we know now is in that those people groups are um, Arabs uh, from Saudi Arabia. Cush begat Nimrod. And let's just go right down to verse 13, because this is really the point. 13, Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtorim. If you look at some old maps of Crete, you can actually see where there's a town called Kaftor, and the Kaftorites, or the uh, Kaftorim, came from this area, and the Kasluhim, and these were the Philistines. The Philistines came from Crete. If you look at a map, they went directly south into Africa, 
and they tried to um, make their home there, but the Egyptians and the Ethiopians kicked them out of there, and so they go up the Mediterranean, and they land in what we know is the land of Israel now, the, the ancient land of Canaan, but now we know it is Israel, and that's where they remained, and that's the people group that Saul and David went up against. That's the people group out of which came Goliath, um, we believe. So, verse 2, this is the land that yet remains, all the land of the Philistines. This is where that people group came from in, in, in antiquity, and they're there right now. I mean, I mean, they're there at this time of the writing of this passage. They have to go in and take care of that. So, verse 3, from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron northward, which is counted as Canaanite, Notice the five lords of the Philistines. And these towns are, are uh, still there today. The Gazites from Gaza, the Ashdodites from uh, Ashdod, the Ashkelonites from Ashkelon, the Gittites of Gath. These towns are still there in Israel today. I wouldn't want to visit any of them. And when we go to Israel, we never ever go toward the coast of the Mediterranean, except when we're in Tel Aviv and we're around, Na- uh, um, uh, I want to say, Na- um, Netanya, there's a, there's a place sometimes where we used to go there, but there's a place where we might go, I don't know. But um, we, we don't go down south on the Mediterranean because that, that land is just filled with angry people. Angry people who are, who are bent on destroying Israel or wanting to. But we don't, we don't visit those areas and we never have to worry about that. But notice from the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Merah that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Aphek to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gabalites and all Lebanon toward the sunrise. Where does the sun rise? From the east, right? It rises in the east. It sets in the west. So from your perspective, it rises in the east. Here's the Jordan River. It rises in the east and it sets in the west. I always like geography. I, I, I love looking at maps, and I like figuring out where I'm at. And, um, and that's one thing that's really good as you're reading through these things. It's good to have a, another Bible or some kind of atlas next to you, and you can see these things. And it really helps you, and it's a lot of fun to see. The land of the Gabalites, I read that. Uh, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamath. All the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon, as far as the brook Mizrephoth, and all the Sidonians, them I will drive out from before the children of Israel. Only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore, verse 7, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine and half tribe of nine tribes and half tribe of Manasseh. And so now we have all this land, and now we, we get to it. And beginning in verse 8, we're, we're going to be looking again uh, at the land that was divided on the east side of the Jordan River, which we already know because we've already been through Deuteronomy. We've been to the end of Deuteronomy where the, this, um, this event happens or has happened. So now it's just re- rehearsing some of the history for us. And now it's actually going to take place. And it's just re, um, reiterating it for us. So with the other half tribe of the Reubenites and Gads, Receive their inheritance, which Moses had given them, verse 8, beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded them. I would encourage you in verse 8, and as we go into the next few verses, just make a note in your Bible to read Numbers chapter 32. Read Numbers 32. We don't have time to go there tonight, but again, this is um, just a, a, a recapitulation of things that have already occurred. And Deuteronomy also, chapter 3. 
specifically verses 12 through 22. So again, Numbers 32, and then Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 12 through 22. That kind of gives this whole narrative, again, in order that you can read it, and uh, it's, it's really good to do. But notice verse 9, it says, From Aurorar, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of Mediba as far as Debon. And so if you had a map and you were looking at this stuff, and sometimes it takes some doing because you got to look, you got to find the, you know, you got to look at a handful of different maps to find these places. And it really is. It's a lot of fun to go through. I've always had this dream. I've got this big table in my office, and I would love sometime, somehow, some way, to get these really high-resolution physical maps that are just really large, of, of the entire land of Israel, where every single thing from antiquity up to the current time is there, and you can just lay that out there, and you can just sit there with a lamp, you know, looking up, and I have my Indiana Jans, John, or Indiana, whatever, my hat, and my whip next to me, you know, and lay that all out and look at, I mean, that would just be the kick, you know, to have that kind of resource. But notice, <laughs> uh, where was I? Okay. Verse 10, and all the cities of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon and as far as the border of the children of Ammon. So again, he's, he's speaking of the, that land on the east of the Jordan, which we've already discussed. Gilead and the, and the border of the Jeshurites and the Maacathites, all Mount Hermon and all Bashan as far as Selkos. So this is all the eastern land east of the Jordan River. And again, they all conquered this land, those two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Notice verse 12. All the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edrei, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast out these. This word giant here is a little bit different than what you might see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, where the word giant literally means Nephilim. Here, the word giant means Rephaim, which is just another, uh, another name for a uh, giants. This was uh, probably the same race uh, of, of giants. And as, as different people, uh, different countries, as they encountered these people, they named them something different. Some called them the Zumims, the Zamzumims, the Emims, the, the Amims, the uh, Avims. Uh, you know, they had all these different names for them, but basically it all meant scary, weird, you know, uh, Genetic nightmare type of people. Okay? So, when he says the Rephaim, just understand these are, these are linebackers for the Detroit Lions. Okay? These guys are huge. They got funny looking teeth. Their breath is really bad. They never shower. They got really twisted chromosomes. You look at their, you look at their DNA under a microscope and it looks like a, it looks like a Los Angeles map and, 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 you know, just... Awful stuff. Just twisted seed. Twisted seed. <laughs> Strange cats, these guys are. And so Moses, he had cast out these Rephaim. Rephaim. You remember that Og... One of the, the kings in the, in the north, when, when they were taking possession of the east side of the Jordan River, the very northern king uh, in Bashan up there next to, by Mount Hermon and up there by the Sea of Galilee on the east side, Og, king of Bashan, he was one of these. He, was, he remained uh, a remnant of the giant. Remember, his bedstead was a, a bed of iron, 
and it was made of iron, and uh, nine cubits is the length and four cubits is his width. So this guy was probably close to over nine, ten feet tall at least. If you go by 18 inches for the cubit, this guy was huge. His mother never complained and said, go clean your room, because he would just squash her, right? But his name, <laughs> the Rephaims, were, the, were called terrible ones. And again, the, the many uh, nations had different names for them. The Anakim, the Emim, the Zamzumim, probably came from the same stock, probably came from the same race of people. But notice verse 13, nevertheless, the children of Israel... Notice, they did not drive out the Jeshurites or the Maacathites, but the Jeshurites and the Maacathites dwell among the Israelites to this day. And see, that's a, that is the indictment against the children of Israel. They were supposed to wipe them out, but, 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 but it says here that they, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And this was part of their undoing, their disobedience, and that's why it's so important for us to be obedient I'm sure they didn't understand. I'm sure that they felt like they were more compassionate than God. Lord, I can't wipe out these people, this, you know, this, you know, this few couple of families that are left here. I just I can't pull myself together to do it. And yet God had pronounced judgment. You know, how hard is it for the children of Israel to take that lamb? I mean, think about this. And Passover. When they celebrate Passover, how hard was it for them to take this cute little lamb of the first year? Have you seen a lamb at the first year? It looks like it's made of Play-Doh. Everything is soft. The ears are big, round, and fluffy, and furry, and fuzzy. And they just look up at you with that eye, you know. The bottom thing starts to quiver a little bit. And then the kids are going, Dad, I want to sleep with this. I I, I love them so much. Mm." Right? The kids are going nuts over the little lamb. And that little lamb has to be sacrificed. Can you imagine how hard that was? How hard was it for the precious lamb of God as he hung on the cross with, with whom there was no sin in him? He was more beautiful than anything. Any, anything of the creation was not as beautiful as he was. Even though he was a man who no one would look at and say, wow, he's just a really good-looking man. The Bible says it was quite the opposite, actually. He, there, was no, there was nothing about him that they, we would look at him and go, wow, he's the man of the hour. Quite the opposite. But yet, what, 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 what was, who he was was more beautiful than anything that God has created. Better than any sunset that you could see looking out in Florida. And I've seen some really nice ones over the last couple of weeks. Sunsets would just take your breath away and say, God, you are an awesome painter. You're an awesome artist. And yet, Jesus Christ, you are... more glorious than it all, right? That's who he is. Nevertheless, I'm sorry, verse 14, only to the tribe of Levi he had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as the Lord said to them. So that was their inheritance. So whenever the children of Israel did sacrifice those pieces, those parts of that animal, much of it was given to them to eat, to survive for their sustenance, right? That was part of their inheritance. God says, I am your inheritance. And, and it's interesting that later on, God would give them 48 cities of all the tribes of Israel. Each one of the tribes would give the, 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 the Levites cities in their inheritance that they could live. They didn't inherit them. They, they were just allowed to live there, and they had 
land around those cities that they could have their livestock because they had to have livestock in order to sacrifice, right? They had to continue propagating those, those cattle and those sheep, right, and those goats. So they continued with that. For the sake of time, I'll just give you some verses. You can look at this. Uh, Joshua 13, verse 33. Um, when we get to the end of this chapter, you'll see it. It says, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he had said to them. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 1 through 5, it says, The priests, the Levites, all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire in his portion. Therefore, they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance. And the, the wine and the sheep and all, all of those things would, would be given to the Israelites. And they'd be given land. You can look at Numbers chapter 35, the first five verses. Numbers 35, it talks about the idea of them, of, of each tribe giving them cities and, and common land around those cities that they could raise their livestock. So let's go on to verse 15. It says, And Moses had given to the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families. Now remember, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the, the, they were the ones who decided, well, we're, we're, we're settled, we're, we're good with this. We're good with this land on the east side. We don't want to go over the Jordan and inherit the land that God has promised to our ancestors from antiquity up until this moment. We're, we'll, we're fine here. The land looks great. Let's just stay here. And what, what happened? They were the first ones, because they were unprotected, when Assyria came in 722 B.C., they were the first ones to be plucked out. The first ones. And I almost wonder what would have happened if they would have gone on the, on, the, on the west side along with the rest of them and obeyed God. You know, God allowed it, but it wasn't his best for them. But they were content. And yet, we can be content where God says, I want to give you something better. But then we say, but Lord, this is fine enough for me. And you know, God sometimes says, you know what, that's okay. If that's really what you want. I can bless you in it for, for, you know, I can bless you in it. But there may be a consequence, and there probably is, somewhere down the road. It's a, it's a difference between God's permissive will and his perfect will. You settle for his permissive will, you may run into trouble, and probably will. But when you settle and won't settle for anything but his perfect will, you're going to be blessed, even though there may be trials involved in it. And believe me, there always will be. There's always a price for obedience. Verse 16, their territory was from Arorar, uh, the uh, children of uh, Reuben, which is on the bank of the river Arnon and the city that is in the midst of the ravine and all the plain, Heshbon and all the cities that are in the plain, Debon, Bayamoth, Baal, Beth, Maal, Meon, Jehaza, Kadimoth, Mephthoth, I'm, I'm butchering some of these names, Kirjathaim, Sibma, Zareth, Shehar on the mountain of the valley, Beth Peor, Beth Peor, does that sound familiar? Remember Balaam, the son of Peor, from Beth Peor? The slopes of Pisgah and Beth Jeshemosh, all the cities of the plain and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses had struck with the princes of Midian, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba. Reba became a new, uh, really a uh, famous country singer, who were princes of Sihon dwelling in the country, verse 22, the children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam. Remember Balaam, the son of, of, of Baor, the soothsayer, who uh, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of the Moabites, had tried to summon to curse the children of Israel. Instead, he blessed them. You can read about that in Numbers 
22 through 24. It's a really great uh, read. If you read through that, kind of gives uh, how God is sovereign over even a man who is uh, not quite where he should have been. God intervenes and overrules him. So verse 23, And the border of the children of Reuben was on the bank of the Jordan, and this was the inheritance of the children of Reuben according to their families and the cities and their villages. And he goes on, he says, Moses also had given an inheritance to the tribe of Gad. So if you look up here, um, uh, the, the, the tribe of Reuben was here. Uh, again, here's the Jordan River. And so in the south, on the, on, the, on the east side of the Jordan River, was the inheritance for, for Reuben. And then right above that was the inheritance to Gad. And then the half-tribe of Manasseh was up north. And so you had these three, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So now we're looking at Gad. So Moses gave them an inheritance. Their territory was from Jazer and all the cities of Gilead and the half, half of the land of the Ammonites as far as Aurora. And again, if you look at these things on the map, you'll see exactly what it is, which is before Rabbah. And from Heshbon to Ramah, Mizpah, and Betonim, and from Maenaim to the border of Debir. And in the valley, Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Succoth, and Zaphon, and the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, with the Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Chinnereth, which is the Sea of Galilee, by the way. Chinnereth just means a harp, and they, they get that because of the, the shape of the Sea of Galilee. It looks like a harp. So they call it the Chinnereth or Kinnereth or the Sea of Galilee, the uh, Lake uh, uh, Gennesaret. It all means the same thing, the Sea of Galilee. On the other side of the Jordan eastward, in verse 28, it says, This is the inheritance of the children of Gad, according to their families, the cities and their villages. And finally, we get to verse 29, Moses also had given an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. And it was for half the tribe of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. And... Um, uh, you can read uh, a really interesting place to, to check out is Genesis 48 and 49. Um, I would encourage you just to read those chapters because it talks about Jacob giving portions to uh, the, the children of Israel and how Joseph got a double portion and his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, were given a, uh, uh, that, that really that right of the firstborn in a sense, and they were given a double portion. And you can see the land, and you can see the result of that there. But Reuben, the firstborn, should have been given the, the, the double portion. But remember, he did some pretty nasty things. He slept with one of his father's concubines and uh, did some other things. And so he was a bad boy. He was sent to bed without dinner. But uh, Joseph, um, his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were given that double portion so verse 30, it says, Their territory was from Mahanaim, all Bashan, and all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, 60 cities. What an amazing thing. And half of Gilead. Gilead is that mountain range right to the, uh, if you go to Israel with us, right on the east side of the uh, uh, Dead Sea. If you're on the Dead Sea and you look across over to the land of Jordan, you'll see a mountain range, and it, and it starts there, and it goes all the way up the Jordan Valley on the east side of the Jordan, and they call it the Gilead, Mount Gilead, and it's a mountain range, and it's all there. And so half of Gilead and Ashtaroth and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, were the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for half of the children of Machir, according to their families. So we're almost done here. These are the areas 
which Moses had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance as he had said to them. And later on, when we get into uh, chapter 20 and 21 of this book, you'll see after the uh, cities of refuge are named, the, the, the names of these cities, these 48 cities that were going to be given to the children of the Levites, the children of Levi, they weren't inheritance uh, per, uh, per se, but they were just uh, cities within the, the, the tribes that they were given to, to live in. They, they didn't inherit them. They were just there, these cities that they could live in and that they could prosper in and that they could live and, and, and raise their livestock for the sacrifices. So it's pretty interesting to see. And next week we'll get into uh, chapter 14 and maybe chapter 15. We'll see how that goes. But notice that the just how obedience, again, I, I think that's really the key tonight as you look through this chapter, you know, knowing history, what happened in history from this time forward is a pretty telling picture. It's a very great lesson if you're willing to look at it and learn something from it, which we ought to. The Word of God is there for our learning, for our admonition. It's there for our encouragement. And if we would listen to it, we would be much better off for it if we would just listen. Listen and then do something about it. Isn't that what the word Shema means when in Deuteronomy 6, I think it says? And the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall um, uh, obey the Lord. Uh, Hear, O Israel, our Lord is one Lord, and you shall worship the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The word hear is in the Hebrew Shema, and it means to hear but to hear with the intention of doing something about it. See, that's the way we need to be as Christians. We need to read the Bible, not just to get information. We need to read it and appropriate it into our life and more, into, more from our head down into our heart to where it changes our character, the way we see things, the way we do things, the way we eat, the things that we say, the way we dress, the way we examine uh, events, the way we size things up. Everything should be through a lens of what the Word of God says, and that's the way we ought to live. And when you live that life, as I, I know I'm trying, you know, by the Spirit of God, and I, you know, all of us are, but continue, continue, don't give up, don't give up. You stay the course and do not give up any land in your heart to the enemy of your soul. That means taking a very good look at every single thing in your life and adding it up and sizing it up. Is this really good for me? Is this really going to draw me closer to the Lord or is it going to lead me away from the Lord? You have to make those decisions in real time. And sometimes you'll make a mistake, but you can always fix it. Go back and fix it. When you've made something wrong, go back and fix it. I don't know how many times I've made a wrong decision and, in, and instead of just reeling in the consequences of it, I'll try and go back and fix it. You know, God will will bless you in it, you know, if your heart is to, to try and fix it. So let's do that. Let's read this and, and, and take it in and say, you know, these are the results. We want good results. Don't you want good results? God wants to bless each one of us. And start off this new year with a new foot. Don't make any promises that you're going to break. Don't make promises. Just do it. And when you fail, get right back on the bike again. When you fall off the bike, get back on the bike again and confess it and act like it never happened and keep going and keep your smile and your heart right with him. It's the only way to do it. 
We can't look upon past failure and wallow in that sin. It's like grave clothes. You're going to go back at the grave and sift through the grave clothes of that old man that's died of that sin that's been repented of already, that sin that you've already confessed to. You're going to go back to it and look at it again and be discouraged again? No, let it go and go forward and never look back. Never look back. We're going to take communion tonight. I'm sorry to keep you a little bit later. It's not too late. Um, If Aubrey and Brian can... um, Come on up, and as uh, they're leading us in worship, um, come on up and help yourself at the table of the mercy and the grace of God. Amen? And then bring it back to your seats, and we'll, uh, we'll take it together, all right?